Matthew chapter 5, I just want to read verses 1 to 12. You're probably very familiar with these now. We've been in here for some time and we'll be in here for some time in the future. There's just a lot in here. Beginning in verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, this is Jesus, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we come to this portion of Scripture, we've been talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount and we've been talking about the Beatitudes and hopefully that's translating over to our small groups as well. But we'll begin today this series on the actual Beatitudes, on the Sermon. This is a section of the Sermon on the Mount and you can tell here that we're basically going to, in the coming weeks, commit a week to each um, blessed. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're going to take a week and see what that looks like. Blessed are those who mourn. We're going to take a week and see what that looks like. But without seeing the whole picture of this this whole sermon, this entire uh, beatitudes, all of them all together, um, it's important that we look at each one. But it's also important for us to look at them as a group. So you might want to uh, just be ready yourself in the coming weeks, we're going to take a little time and go through this. Well, what are these Beatitudes? Um, do they spell out conditions somehow that we must meet in order to receive eternal life? Is that what it is? Uh, do they celebrate the power of, of God in the life of the disciples? Is that what these blessings are all about? Or could it be both? Um, how do we know? Well, today we're going to look at the lens in a little wider opening and take the whole thing in. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to take one at a time. And we'll narrow it down to each beatitude themselves. You notice there at the end of chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that he went about all Galilee, Jesus teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of what? Of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. Um, one way to kind of restate that, you might say, is that Jesus made a ministry to preach the coming of the kingdom, to teach the way of the kingdom. He felt it important to demonstrate the purpose and the power of the kingdom by healing those who were sick with infirmities, and he did that. So we looked at those three elements, preaching, teaching, and healing. And then you turn over to Matthew 9, verse 35, and you almost find the same summary itself. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of what? Of the kingdom healing every disease and every infirmity. So this was kind of a staple of Jesus' ministry. It was commonplace. This is what, how he began and this is how he continued. And as we talked about earlier, basically chapters 5 through 7 are basically a collection of Jesus' teachings. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And then you get into verses 8 and 9 and it's more, mainly stories about his healing ministry and things like that. Um, 
But it's important to understand that Jesus was concerned with our attitude as believers. He was concerned with how we view ourselves in Christ. He was concerned with how we view ourselves in this world. He was concerned with, are we downcast? Are we downtrodden? Is our spirit broken? That word blessing, we just in review real quick, means happiness. And the idea that you could be happy and be poor in spirit seems like a, a paradox. Seems like that's, that doesn't make sense. It seems like you wouldn't be happy if you were mourning. Well, Jesus has a different meaning in all these, and that's what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But it was Jesus Christ who wanted us to be happy. And I, I want to read just a little section out of a book that uh, John Worthington gave me for my birthday, actually. And... Um, it's a book by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. And um, usually I don't read, but it's, it's kind of a, a neat way, the way he puts it here. Um, he says, that is a good way of facing any problems as, as far as talking about looking into Scripture in the spiritual life. It is good always to start with the Bible. Where there is explicit teaching on every condition, it is also good to look at examples and illustrations from the same source. And he goes on here, and it's just basically a sermon that he preached. And um, he, he says here that with, with believers, I'm trying to find where it was, with believers, the one problem that they have is that all these circumstances from life are pressing in on them. And he says, he says, there are some people who are only interested in the illustrations, in the stories. But if we are not careful to extract the principles which are illustrated by the stories, we shall probably um, end by aggravating our own condition. And though it is great profit to be gained by looking at examples and illustrations, it is very vital that we first take a look at the teaching first. And then he goes down here and he says, it is very sad to contemplate the fact that there are Christian people who live the greater part of their lives in this world in such a condition. Speaking of Psalm 42, the man who is downcast. Why so downcast all my soul? It does not mean that they're not Christians, but it does mean that they're missing a great deal, missing so much that is important that we would inquire into the whole condition of spiritual depression outlined so clearly in this psalm. And he's talking about Psalm um, uh, uh, 42. But he says, he goes on here and he says, we're living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in the truth, which is that's the day we live in today. But they are interested in the results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They're frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. Now, we believe that God extends his kingdom partly through his people. And we know that he oftentimes has uh, done some of the most notable things in history of the church through the simple Christian uh, living uh, through the simple Christian living on, of some quite ordinary uh, people. Nothing is more important, therefore, that it should be delivered from a condition which gives other people, looking at us, the impression that to be a Christian, and here's important, that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who scorns delight, and lives laborious days. There are many indeed who give this as a reason for not being a Christian and for giving up all interest that 
they may ever have had in the Christian faith. They say, look at, look at these Christian people. Look at the impression they give. And they are very fond of contrasting us with the people out in the world, people who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in, whatever they may be. They shout at their football matches. They talk about the films they've never seen. They're so full of excitement and they want everybody to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and of absence of joy. He goes on, he says, there's no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. Um, it's, it's an incredible thing to realize that the way that we behave on a daily basis can impact other people's lives. The way you carry yourself, the way you deal with your trials, the way that you embrace life as a whole. Are you, are you looking at life going, whoa, woe is me, you know, I'm just, you know, boy, it's so fun to be a Christian, whippy. If it is, then don't call yourself a Christian. Because that's not what a Christian is about. I'm not saying we don't have parts of depression, we don't deal with these things, we all deal with it. But it comes down to having that deep-seated joy and that assurance of your faith in your heart. Knowing that, hey, no matter what the world dishes at us, whatever it is, that we can grab a hold of it with both hands and say, hey, come on, this is of God. We're going to deal with this. God will allow me to deal with this. And that's where this joy that he says so many Christians don't have comes from. And what we're going to see as we go through these Beatitudes, it's all about our attitude. You know, you can wake up and your house could be burnt down. It's all about your attitude. Crying about your house isn't going to bring your house back. This last week, John and I were having a meeting in my office and heard the fire sirens and whistles and went on the computer and, whoa, Euclid, where's my house? Right down the street. So we were kind of right there and talking to some people and, and had a chance to go over to the pastor there at, at um, uh, the, the Baptist church over there, the new church. That today's their opening Sunday. They had a big fire on Thursday or Friday. And, and so, you know, as we were talking, you know, I said, you know, brother, God's going to get you through this. And he just looked at me with a smile on his face and goes, I know. I know. It's not what we expected. As a matter of fact, I told him, I said, I got a postcard in the mail and I thought your barbecue was supposed to be on Sunday. <laughs> you know, this was Thursday and he kind of looked at me at first and then he started laughing, you know. So I thought, okay, you know, kind of break the ice here. But, um, you know, it's how you embrace it. You know, and, and just over the past couple of days, down at that cul-de-sac, there's been a flurry of activity, which may have not have happened if the, if the church wouldn't have caught on fire. You know, as all these people are coming together to meet a need, to meet a cause. And sometimes that's how God works. He works through trials. But if we're just, you know, crying over our spilled soup and we're not going to see that, then, you know, we're not going to receive the blessings that God has for us and that joy and peace. Well, here, Jesus is, it says, when the crowds came, he sat down and he began to teach them. Okay, so there's two basic audiences here. There's, there's the, the, tighter group of people, the disciples, but there's also this outlying group of people called the crowds. And they're just there. They're there because they heard about this guy and kind of wondering what's going on. He's healed people or whatever. And so Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. Now, they're probably not very much interested in what Jesus is teaching other than, you know, they may probably want to see some miraculous things, something like that. But the disciples are there to hear him teach. 
You know, hopefully you're here this morning to hear the teaching of the Word of God because you know the Savior and, and you want to be committed to your Christian faith and you want to grow and you want to be edified and built up in your faith. And so you're here this morning because you know that that's what God's Word instructs you to do and you embrace it with joy and you say, yeah, I want to be taught. Well, there may be some here who are kind of like the crowds. They don't know the Lord, you know, and, and they're just kind of searching some things out and that's okay. And we pray that the curious and the onlookers and the skeptical and the searchers and the doubters, when they come to grace, crowds that are gathered behind those maybe who know the Lord, we believe that when we teach the Word of God, that it has authority. We believe that it has the ability to change a person's heart, to convict them of their sin. It's not what I say. It's what God's Word says. And so this section of Scripture is primarily focused at the disciples. It's not the crowds are just there. The crowds are just there. But the teaching is very pointed to the disciples. It's like on Sunday morning, I mean, basically we're talking to Christians this morning. That's the purpose of the church. Um, you know, when you, when you fail to forget that they, they gathered on the first day of the week, why? You know, to worship and to celebrate the Christian faith together as believers doesn't mean unbelievers aren't welcome here. They definitely are. But we don't want to change everything just so that maybe a, a, an unbeliever or someone who doesn't know Christ um, can somehow uh, feel something you know, good about themselves. Because when you preach the truth that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and, and basically there's no good in anybody, that doesn't sound like a very comforting message. <laughs> but if you... Ask God to open your eyes to His truth. He will. And so he begins the sermon here. And there's two, there's two groups. The disciples and the crowds. And the disciples, you can kind of see them kind of gathered around His feet. And the, the crowds are probably behind them listening in. And uh, probably sitting there thinking, okay, what's He going to say? How's He going to begin? What's He going to do? What's, this is kind of His first big sermon. What's He going to say? And he basically begins by pronouncing certain people as fortunate, certain people as being blessed. That's why we call these pronouncements the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word that means happiness or blessedness. And like I said, there's eight Beatitudes here, but there's only one unit. They're all together. We're going to look at them individually, but we have to take the whole of it to make sure that we understand the whole thing. Verse 11 could be viewed as a ninth one. Some of you may be saying, oh no, there's nine. Well, I believe that that's kind of a continuation of verse 10. And the reason is, is because it's different than, than the other ones. If you look at those just quickly in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who persecute you for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then it says in verse 11, Blessed are you. He didn't say, blessed are you, anywhere else. Just that, last, that, that verse 11. So I think it's a continuation of the eighth beatitude, which is blessed are those who persecute you. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> Not those, but those who are persecuting you may be blessed too. They may be happy while they're doing it. I don't know, but that's not what it says here. So none of the others say, blessed are you. So it's probably an extension of verse 10. And it's kind of revealing a specific way in which you can be persecuted. So you can see that the eight Beatitudes in verses 3 to 10 are a unit. And the reason you can do that is if you look at the first one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what's it say? For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. 
Okay? And then look at the last one. Verse 10. Blessed are those who persecute are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, and in between those two phrases, you have sandwiched six other Beatitudes. And that's how I kind of want to look at this this morning. The promise of the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you look at verse 10, blessed are those who are pers persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They both have an identical promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the other six Beatitudes, they're sandwiched between those two, they're different. Verse 4, for they shall be what? Comforted. Verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall obtain mercy. For they shall see God. Verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. If you're any kind of student, you can look at those two phrases. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the other ones, for they shall be comforted. Right away you pick up, oh, wait a minute, there's a, there's a change in tense here. Interesting. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the other ones are future, for they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. Some of these promises are for the future. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied and so on. But the promise of the first and the last beatitude, verses 3 and verse 10, seem to be related to the present. And Jesus is there with His disciples and He's, he's come to preach the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are assured that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not something they look forward to. It's something they can possess right then and there. Kind of an interesting pattern as you look at that. Well, what's the implications here? First of all, I think by sandwiching these six promises in between these two assurances that such people have the, the kingdom of heaven, I think Jesus means to tell us that these six promises are blessings of the kingdom. We, we have the kingdom, but these are blessings of the kingdom. In other words, these six things are what you can count on when you are part of God's kingdom. This is what the kingdom brings. The kingdom brings what? Comfort, earth ownership, satis, uh, uh, satisfied righteousness, mercy, a vision of God. The awesome title of being called the Son of God. See, you don't have to pick and choose among these promises. They all, all of them, belong to the kingdom. That's the first implication. I see in the fact that Jesus begins with the assurance, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and he ends with the assurance, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, with these six promises kind of sandwiched in between. The other implication of this comes from the fact that the first and last assurances are present tense. And yet the six in the middle, as I mentioned, are future. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think this is Jesus' way of saying that in some sense the kingdom of heaven is present with the disciples right then, right now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But those full blessings of the kingdom that he's speaking about here will have to wait for the age to come. They shall inherit the earth. Another way to put it, one commentator said that Jesus has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth in his own kingly power, in his own fellowship. And we can enjoy foretastes of it here and now. But the full experience of the life of the kingdom will have to wait for the age to come. You can see what he means right here in the Beatitudes. 
Look at verse 4, for example, being comforted. He says, those who mourn will one day be comforted. If you turn over to Revelation 21.4, the Word of God says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall no, be no more, neither shall be there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. That's Revelation 21, verse 4. But if you look at verses 11 and 12 in Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you under all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great where? In heaven. In other words, even though the final reward of comfort is being kept for us in heaven, we can rejoice even now in the midst of our suffering, whatever it may be. And is not this joy a foretaste of the, the promised comfort that we'll have one day? There's no joy without some element of comfort. Or even the idea of obtaining mercy in verse 7. It says they shall obtain mercy. Stop and think about that. Think of the, the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 25. Or 23 to 35. It says, The king says to the wicked servant, remember, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, Jesus teaches what we do not merely waits for the age to come to receive mercy. It has come in Jesus. We don't have to wait for that. We taste it here and now in forgiveness of sins and all the blessings that we have in the Christian life. Or verse 9, when it says, They shall be called sons of God. Romans 8.23 says, We groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, the full benefits of being the sons of God await the resurrection. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for that day. I can't wait to get the new body. Think about it. No more aches, no more pains. No more contacts that are blurry and you can't see what you're trying to follow here. None of that. We'll have a new body. Verse 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may say your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God is already our Father. This isn't, it says we, we shall be called sons of God. But there's an element of that that that's, that's right now. If you're a born-again believer, if you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can count God as your Father today. We're already sons. We've been adopted into His family. And we have a kind of a foretaste of that sonship now. But it's, it's just a foretaste. We don't understand the whole thing. It's going to be different when we're in heaven. Because we won't have this sinful body to deal with. We won't have this sinful world to deal with. And the point of these three examples is that the kingdom of heaven is both what? It's both present and future, isn't it? It's both. I think that's why in verses 3 and 10, he assures us that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in verse 9, the promises of that kingdom blessings are still in the future. It is both. And we need to remember that. That as much as this world can dish out and as hard as life can be down here, that you know what? We have a spot in the kingdom of heaven reserved for us. 
And we can live these principles out on a daily basis, even now, even today. And I think without this insight into the Sermon on the Mount, we'd have a hard time with some things. Um, when you look at verse 7, without this insight that the kingdom of kingdom blessings of God's mercy are both present and future, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Obtain mercy, right? Well, does that mean that God somehow withholds His mercy until the future day of reckoning? And He's up there waiting to see if we will be merciful enough on our end of the deal to earn His mercy? Is that possibly what this could mean? And remember, the difference between grace and mercy. We went over this in our small group on, on uh, Wednesday night. Grace is something that we get it's a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy is something withholding something that we do deserve. So do we earn God's mercy? I don't think so. If you know the gospel of the kingdom, which Christ is preaching, if you know the good news that the kingdom has already come, that's his point, and it's now it's work in this world like a kind of like a big net gathering people into the kingdom. If you know that the power of the kingdom is already present as well as future, then you will know that our becoming merciful is right now a work of God's kingly mercy. The only way you could ever be merciful is if God granted you that. That's the point in Matthew 18.33 when the king said, And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? You remember that? As I had mercy on you. In other words, his prior mercy enabled that, should have enabled that servant to be merciful. God's mercy in our life should enable us to be merciful. We don't try to be merciful so that we can get God's mercy. That's backwards. See, the powerful mercy of the kingdom of God has already come in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is not just waiting like some judge that had a bad day at the end of the age to see whether or not we'll be able to earn his mercy. And then by, you know, by, at that point, by showing mercy now. That's not how it works. God is not merely waiting. He is casting the net of mercy out into this lost and dying world. And he's dragging people to life and to hope and to joy and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to get that right. We have to understand that. If we don't understand that, then when we read through these things, we're going to be all mixed up. It's both present and future. John 6.44 says this, No one can come to me, Jesus says this, unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me except the Father draws him. And in verse 65 of the same chapter, John 6, he says, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The mercy of the kingdom is in the world and it's drawing people to Christ. The mercy of the kingdom is in the world and it's opening people's eyes to the glorious gospel of Christ. Do you remember when, when uh, uh, what Jesus said to Peter? When Peter confessed him to be the Messiah? Remember, he said, who art thou? And, and, and he said, well, blessed are you, bar Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? But my Father who is in heaven. 
Matthew 16, 17. Peter stated exactly who Christ, wit, Christ was when, when Christ asked him. And then, and then Jesus, he didn't say, oh, great, you got it right. He said, hey, the only reason you knew that is because God told you. God opened your eyes. God is not waiting to see if Peter will recognize Jesus as Messiah. It wasn't, there wasn't any question. God intervened and he opened his eyes. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, Simon. God has. And that's how every true believer comes to Christ. It's because God has opened their eyes. You did not choose Him first. It doesn't happen that way. He chose you, the Bible says. You didn't come to Him first. He drew you, the Bible says. It's so important that we get this right, that we understand that, because if we don't, we're starting off on a real real shifting foundation. You didn't recognize Christ first. God opened your eyes, Matthew 16, 17. And all this is what? It's mercy, mercy, mercy. God is, is withholding something that we deserve. What do we deserve? As human beings, we deserve judgment. We're all sinners. We've all come short of God's glory. He's, he has a mark that's so high we could never reach it. You're sitting here this morning you're saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, no, you're not. You may be dressed up real nice and smell real nice this morning, but you know what? The Bible describes your heart outside of Christ as dark. And if you're really honest with yourself and you're sitting here this morning, you know, I'm sure that you could think of at least one thing that you could call sin in your life. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. There's none who does good, none, not one. No, not one, the Bible says. And so we come to this sermon of Jesus saying, wow, he's all this happiness, but boy, your message this morning, Pastor, doesn't sound too happy. We've well, got to have the right perspective. Romans 9.16 says, It is not of him who wills or runs, but of God who has what? Who has mercy. See, many passages in Scripture teach that God will show mercy on us in the future if we live a certain way now. That's true. Many other passages in Scripture teach that God has already shown us mercy, enabling us to live in a certain way now. These aren't inconsistent It's the fabric of the biblical life. We're born anew by the mercy of God and we're sanctified by the mercy of God. And so when we get to the, the judgment seat of God, God doesn't look at us and go, gee, you're just a perfect person. Hey, you're still a sinner. But you know what? I see in your life the distinguishing fruit of my son's mercy on you. Your mercy on others is the evidence that he had mercy on you. And for His sake, once again, even though now I should be judging you, but because you put your faith, your trust in My Son for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm going to show you mercy once again. Come and inherit the kingdom. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, we have to look at these Beatitudes for what they are. They're part of a biblical fabric for life. Their announcement of how fortunate the people of God are who have already put their faith, their trust in Christ and already possess it, as it were, the power of the kingdom. 
The, the Beatitudes are really announcements that people like this are very blessed. They're very fortunate. But that's not all. That's not all. The Beatitudes also contain a kind of an invitation to become like this person. See, we should be able to look at these and say, boy, am I poor in spirit or humble? Do I mourn? I mean, all these things, you know, are, am I meek? The disciples who were sitting at Jesus' feet and they heard these words really as congratulations. Jesus is really looking at them saying, oh, how fortunate you are, my dear brothers. How fortunate you are to be chosen of God. How fortunate you are to have your eyes open, to be drawn to the Savior, to be poor and mourning and meek and hungry and merciful and pure and peaceable. He's saying to them, rejoice, be happy, give thanks, my beloved disciples, that you are this kind of person. Because it's not your doing. It is the reign of God in your life. So the disciples hear the Beatitudes as words of celebration about the work of God in their lives. But what about the crowds? What about the people standing behind the disciples? How do they hear these words? Do they hear them as congratulations? Do they hear these words as words of happiness? How should they hear them? If they're not poor in spirit, if they're not mourning, if they're not meek and hungry for righteousness, how should they hear these words? What do these words mean for them? You can't congratulate a guest on his wedding garment if he doesn't have it on. Matthew 22, verses 11 to 14 talks about that. If you see people being welcomed to a feast with a certain garment on, don't the words of welcome stir you up to go and get a garment like that? Think if we left here afterwards and say you're just visiting here with us and, and uh, all of a sudden after the service is over and everybody's leaving, they all put on a white hat. Everybody had a white hat. Everybody that walked in that fellowship over there had this white hat on. But you didn't have one. You'd probably look and go, hmm, this is kind of weird. <laughs> and it would be kind of weird. And we're not going to wear white hats. If you have a white hat today, that's fine. But, we... but you know, you would probably look, well, where do I get one of these hats? It seems like this hat is some kind of, some kind of a, a thing to get into this food we're going to eat over here. And I'm hungry because you've been preaching a long time and haven't had any breakfast. So the more he talks about food, the hungrier I get. So I want one of these hats. I want to go in there and fellowship with everybody else. And everybody else has one of these hats on. See, that's what it is when we look at heaven. When you see, when people are able to look at us and see us being blessed and, and see our lives as, as one filled with joy and see these elements of being poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungry for righteousness and peaceable and pure and merciful. When people see that and say, that's the kind of person that gets into the kingdom... Well, how do I become like that? And that's when God intervenes and changes their heart, transforms them, forgives their sin. Not everybody may think, look at that. Some people may say, I'm not wearing that stupid hat. I'm going to go to Burger King. That's fine. But some may look for a hat because they want to go where everybody else is going. You may be here this morning. The hat is Christ. You have to put on Christ. You have, to, you have to open your heart to the things of God. You have to ask God to show you the state of your condition, which is lost. You're lost. You have no hope without God. You have no hope without Christ. Zero. 
I don't care how good you may think you are. I don't care how religious you may think you are. I don't care how many times you go to church. All that stuff is irrelevant when it comes to the condition of your heart. And one day, we're all going to die. And one day, we're going to stand before a holy God and He's going to basically look at you and, and come to a conclusion as to whether or not you will be in heaven for eternity or you will be cast into hell. And the, the way he will make that decision is whether or not you, because there's nothing good in you, you couldn't save yourself. The Bible clearly says that. It's a work of God. You couldn't do enough to get into heaven. It's only on the back of Christ. It's only on his accomplishment through Calvary when he died for all who would put their faith or trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. That's the only answer you could give. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer is Christ, your son. I put my faith and trust in Christ. Anything else is a, is a non-answer. Anything else won't work. There's no back door. It's either heaven or hell. There's no holding tank where you might go and have people pray for you for a while and, and maybe eventually you might get into heaven. It doesn't work that way. That's not biblical. That's, that's an erroneous teaching of a church that basically is interested in money. That's why they developed that whole thing. But that's a whole other sermon. I don't want to go there right now. But where are you this morning with Christ? These are words of invitation for the crowds. They're words to invite people to come and worship. For some, there's the words of transformation that they'll, they'll sense the power of God, the Holy Spirit working in their heart. And I just want to ask you this morning, what, what are they for you when you look at these things? Are these something that you maybe would want to embrace? Or are you just like, ah, no thanks. That's fine too. Because God has His time in His way to get your attention. Next week, we're going to look at the first of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know, what we're going to deal with is how this is really the best news a hopeless sinner could ever hear. Um, the condition we must meet in order to have any dealings with God is basically spiritual bankruptcy. We have to be totally bankrupt spiritually before we can approach God. And it's really the easiest and it's also the hardest condition. You stop and think about it, what could be easier than an empty hand? Unless that empty hand is clutching to a thousand dollar bill. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning and and Lord, I pray that as we embrace these Beatitudes in the coming weeks, Lord, just being able to see them as a whole unit um, first to lay down a foundation. Lord, uh, I pray that this morning, if, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that You would do that work in them even now. Lord, that You would open their eyes, that You would help them see their sinfulness, Lord, we all have it. It's not like they're, they're different than anybody else. We're all hopeless sinners. And we all need a taste of Your grace. We all need to be saved by Your grace. And Father, we just pray that we would come to You with an empty hand. Lord, um, if we're clutching on to things, 
whether it's things of this world or personal bill of rights that we might have, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that we would be able to leave them at the cross, that you would do that work in people's hearts this morning, that they would cry out to you for mercy, for forgiveness. Lord, as believers, I pray that we would begin to understand our position in Christ, that our position in Christ should be more than enough for us to be exceedingly joyful and happiness and passionate about our love for you and our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, our desire to serve you in any way, to embrace the trials that you send our way with a smile on our face, with an excitement in our heart, wondering how are you going to turn this around, God? This is impossible. How are you going to do it this time? That's how we're called to live as believers, moment by moment, ever trusting in your sovereign hand, your grace, and your mercy. We thank you this morning. We pray that you would just bless this time to our hearts. And Lord, we also look forward to our time together over in the fellowship hall. And, and Father, I just want to now even pray for the food as, as we partake together. Lord, that you would bless it to our bodies uh, for the nourishment. And, and just, uh, Lord, that you would uh, do that in a mighty way and help everybody that's, that's helping and assisting uh, cook the food and everything. And, and Lord, we just pray that we'd have a joyful time of fellowship this afternoon. And Lord, we just look forward to that. In Jesus' precious name, amen.